Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Breaking news this morning. First Republic Bank becomes the third major U.S. bank to fail in the past two months. Regulators taking over the bank this morning with J.P. Morgan set to assume all assets and deposits after a drawn-out bidding process. U.S. stock futures lower on the news. Investors now weighing the potential impact of First Republic's collapse, this week's Fed meeting, the monthly jobs report, and the onslaught of earnings. It is Monday, May the 1st, 2023, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Monday morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Collin. Thanks for joining us. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. As we mentioned, they are lower on that news that First Republic Bank will be taken over by J.P. Morgan. We're only seeing it fractionally lower right now. We'll continue to watch futures all morning long. We're also checking the bond market this morning. Looking at the benchmark 10-year, we're seeing the 10-year come in at 3.46. Not that much movement over the past month. The two-year note yield still above 4%, something to watch as we continue to watch the market action today. All right, let's get back to our top story and breaking news. California regulators seizing possession of First Republic Bank in what is officially the third major U.S. bank to fail in the past two months and the second largest bank ever to fail here in the United States. After submitting bids over the weekend, the FDIC says J.P. Morgan Chase will assume all First Republic deposits, including all uninsured assets. In a statement, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon saying in part, our government invited us and others to step up, and we did. Dimon adding, our financial strength, capabilities, and business model allowed us to develop a bid to execute the transaction in a way to minimize the cost of the deposit insurance fund. Key elements of this transaction include, according to the statement, the acquisition of the substantial majority of First Republic Bank's assets. That includes approximately $173 billion of loans and approximately $30 billion of securities. We're spelling it out right here behind you if you're reading. The assumption of approximately $92 billion of deposits, and that includes... 30 billion of large bank deposits, which will be repaid post-close or just eliminated in consolidation. So J.P. Morgan says it is not assuming First Republic's corporate debt or its preferred stock. With this deal, First Republic branches will open for business with no interruptions for clients. We will have much more on this story throughout the hour. All right. Concerns around First Republic and the regional bank reckoning just one major market force at play as we kick off a new week and a new month of trading. Other issues on the front burners this week, this week's Fed meeting and the ongoing risk of more rate hikes from the central bank, along with a possible ensuing recession. Then on the other hand, we have a batch of better than expected earnings and forecasts from big tech just last week. And they're giving the bears some pause. Joining me now to discuss is Stewart Partners Global Advisory Executive Managing Director, Eric Bailey. Eric, good morning to you. Good morning, Frank. All right, Eric, certainly a lot to talk about this morning. I want to first get your reaction to the takeover of First Republic Bank by J.P. Morgan. How do you see it impacting the market action specifically today? Uh, well, the futures you're seeing are a little down. I think overall it's a positive uh, for the markets because First Republic has been kind of in this zombie structure for a while now. And to get clarity and finality on, on 
you know, on, on the bank getting acquired is positive. And, and a name like JP Morgan doing it, uh, is also positive. So I think, I think it's going to be positive today. Uh, it's going to be interesting. We've had a very strong, uh, end of April, the last two weeks with earnings. And, and as you stated, this is a big week, especially with the Fed, uh, meeting coming up. You know, Eric, I, I want to key on one word you use, finality. Do you see this as being the end to the so-called banking crisis and the concerns around regional banks? Because I would think seeing one more of these banks getting taken over by a big bank would only ramp up some of those concerns about the solvency of the regional bank sector. I sure hope so. And I think so. I think if you looked at the earnings the first week in April from the banks um, overall, some of those names that were a concern held up OK. And you saw their stocks recover and 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 stabilize. Where First Republic, after their earnings, did just the opposite. It really cratered and it showed that this bank, something had to happen and, it, and it's happening today. All right. So we're looking at the market reaction. J.P. Morgan Chase up almost three percent. First Republic now down about thirty five percent, thirty four percent. Seeing the stock move just a bit. Overall, what areas of the market do you see being potentially impacted to the upside or the downside by this deal being done? Well, clearly financials. It's going to be interesting to see those regional banks we, we just talked about, how they react today to this news. Well, you know, to, so I'm going to be watching that sector closely. Um, and I'll be watching the sectors that, you know, where the momentum has been. Really, the Nasdaq's been very strong. The tech sector's been very strong to see if that momentum can continue. Uh, and if this news brings uh, a little more stability to the, you know, to the markets. All right. So with this deal, we have had a, a lot of concerns actually before this deal, excuse me, about the tightening of credit. We have the Fed decision coming up just in a few days. Um, overall, how do you see the cost of capital picture moving the markets today and beyond? I think it's a, a negative on the markets because the cost of capital is is higher. Uh, banks clearly need to shore up their balance sheets. And so lending standards are going to be a lot tighter. And so that higher cost of capital is going to flow through uh, the rest of the economy. And you do think it will slow things down. So overall, I think it is a negative on equities. I want to get to your picks that you gave us before this news broke, in all fairness. We're talking Caterpillar, McDonald's, PepsiCo, and Medtronic, a lot of blue chip names in their respective spaces. Does this story, the tightening of credit conditions, the rate hike potential, does that change your thesis at all? No, I mean, these are all part of the dividend aristocrats uh, strategy. These are companies that have proven in all types of market cycles that they can hold up well. They've they've increased their dividend payments to shareholders for 25 consecutive years. So all these names, while they're different industries, I clearly think that, you know, the McDonald's and the Pepsi have shown real resilience in this economy versus Caterpillar, an industrial, which is more impacted from uh, an economic slowdown. Uh, long term, I really like these names. All right. Certainly something to watch today. Uh, again, First Republic being acquired by J.P. Morgan. Eric Bailey, great to have you here. Have your insight on a day like this where so much is shifting and moving in the pre-market. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Frank. All right. We come back here on Worldwide Exchange. Much more on the collapse of First Republic Bank and the next steps for the U.S. financial system. We have our Leslie Picker coming up with the very latest. Plus, crypto companies at odds with regulators threatening a sector-wide crackdown we look at the stocks, the price action, and the next steps ahead. And later, recapping what was a very big week for big tech and why just nine stocks could make or break this market. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade, Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. If you are just joining us, our top story and breaking news this morning, California regulators seizing possession of First Republic Bank in what is officially the third major U.S. bank to fail in just the past two months and the second largest bank ever to fail here in the U.S. After submitting bids over the weekend, the FDIC says J.P. Morgan Chase will assume all First Republic deposits, including all uninsured assets. Right now, we're watching shares of J.P. Morgan. We're seeing those shares up almost 3 percent, shares of First Republic down more than 30 percent this morning. All right. We're also watching the price action in Bitcoin this morning. The asset now up four months in a row. That's its longest monthly winning streak since 2021 as it hovers just a tick below $30,000 a coin. But the stock's tracking that digital currency, not as fortunate as regulators continue to put the squeeze on that sector. Joining us now, CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sagalos. Mac, good morning. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Frank. All right, so give us a sense of what's going on in the cryptocurrency space. Looking at them right now, all of them down in the pre-market. Right. And there are a couple of things going on here. So you've mentioned Coinbase. It's having this regulatory fight with the SEC that really ratcheted up last week. And so there are some concerns among investors that if there are more draconian rules coming down the pike, that it may uh, you know, be a headwind for the sector. That being said, the banking crisis, typically a good thing. So First Republic may also uh, have some bearing on price moves this coming week. All right. Speaking of banking crisis, obviously our big news today, First Republic Bank being taken over by J.P. Morgan. How has the banking crisis impacted the cryptocurrency market? A lot of us have been watching cryptocurrencies since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And I mean, you look at a chart of the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies starting from March 10th, when we saw a lot of the problems begin with Silicon Valley Bank. And it's just been this like this upward trend. Bitcoin gained 22 percent in March alone. And part of that has to do, at least the bulls would say, with the fact that there's this erosion of confidence in the traditional banking system. And then they see cryptocurrencies, these decentralized currencies outside the reach of any sort of intermediary as potentially being a safe haven play. I mean, you even look at Bitcoin against bank stocks, the KRE, against the NASDAQ 100, represented by the triple Qs, and it's well outperforming since March 10th. Yeah, we're looking at the Bitcoin chart right now. You see the big spike, see a little dip right before March 10th, and you see that huge spike and a move to the upside since then. So I I really want to drill down on this. Um, We're hearing more and more about tightening credit conditions, possibly a rate hike, and that whole cost of capital, turmoil in the financial sector. Is that a, a net headwind? For Bitcoin and for other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, you mentioned at the top of the show, we're getting a decision, a decision from the Fed in the next few days. And, and that always has w- one of the biggest effects in terms of outsized price movements in Bitcoin and the wider cryptocurrency market, because those macroeconomic data points, those moves by the Fed absolutely ripple into the price of Bitcoin. And, and one thing to mention here, Frank, when Silicon Valley Bank closed, so did Silvergate and so did Signature, two major crypto friendly banks. And with it, a lot of the liquidity fell out of the crypto market, which means that if you've got a bullish buy, that's great for the price of Bitcoin. But if you've got a bearish buy or you've got people <laughs> selling, then you're seeing outsized prices 
moving lower. I want to focus on one of the companies you cover. You, you yeah. mentioned it earlier, Coinbase. Yeah. Why aren't we seeing positive price action for Coinbase? Generally, in the past at least, Coinbase kind of traded in line with cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. Bitcoin up big, but Coinbase taking a dip to the downside. I mean, that's such a great point. And it really goes to this, uh, this legal fight being waged between the SEC and Coinbase. Coinbase sued the SEC on Monday. They have a Wells notice from the SEC, meaning that formal, uh, formal suit from the SEC against Coinbase could be coming. And the worry here, Frank, is that there may, uh, you know, they may be forced to register as a national securities exchange, a clearing agency, which could mean they would have to jettison their customer facing business. That's a huge headwind for this business. And, and, and it is funny because you do typically see upward price movements in the crypto market tracking with those uh, crypto focused companies. And there's been a huge departure. All right, Mackenzie Sagalas, I know you're going to be watching the moves when it comes to cryptocurrency all day long. <laughs> yes. Might be a long day for you. Mackenzie, always great to see you. Great stuff. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Frank. All right. Coming up ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, look at this week's global hotspots. We're watching developments that could move the needle for the markets and for your money with special attention on the cybersecurity sector. Stay with us. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade, Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. All right, welcome back to WAX. Turning now to our top global hotspots. That's areas around the world where tensions are rising and could potentially impact the markets and your money. This week, it's all about cybersecurity. As Russia's war in Ukraine continues to pose serious threats to the U.S. and to other NATO countries in the form of hacktivist groups, those are private organizations using hacking as a form of civil disobedience and whose efforts are potentially being initiated and supported by the Russian government. But it's not just Russia. American officials are growing increasingly worried about China's potential invasion of Taiwan and what that could mean for the networks of companies providing services to the military and infrastructure operators. And we can't forget about North Korea, which remains a highly active source of state-sponsored attacks on U.S. businesses. That includes one back in March that saw North Korea-linked hackers attach malware to a video conferencing tool used by major U.S. companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's, also Japan's Toyota. Researchers for several cybersecurity firms are confirming this attack, and that includes my next guest, Timer Weingarten, is the CEO of Sentinel One, and he joins me now. Tomer, good morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right. So a, a lot to look at when it comes to cybersecurity. We mentioned a few different countries, regions where threats could come from. So right now, uh, if you were talking to a CEO of another company about the biggest threat that their company should prepare for, which country would it be and what kind of attacks? Yeah, it really, really depends on the industry. But, you know, there's definitely an elevated um, threat environment out there. And, and these are the exact countries that you mentioned. Um, you know, Russia, obviously, a major source of, of a lot of these very disruptive attacks. Um, Russia, as you mentioned, I mean, some of these attacks are government aided. Some of them are uh, permitted by the government, let's say. Um, then if you kind of look at China, obviously, uh, political influence, um, IP theft, data theft. I mean, that's all um, that we're seeing from the activity uh, that's born in that country. And all in all, I mean, Iran is also a source of, of some disruption. Mentioned North Korea, same there. A lot of these have different motives. So it really is dependent on what type of industry you're at. Um, but again, the uh, threat landscape is completely in an elevated activity state right now. 
So as we've seen the transition over to the cloud, that's kind of heightened some cybersecurity concerns. Um, here in the U.S., we've taken, taken steps already to limit the amount of chips that go to different governments. As far as our cloud infrastructure in the United States, how vulnerable is it to uh, attacks from cybersecurity players, uh, cyber attack players, I should say, out there? And is there any one region that's specifically targeting our cloud infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all the same region, regions, all, all the same actors. And I think that the cloud itself might not be uh, more vulnerable than our on-premise networks. I think the combination of the two of them and the overall state um, of infrastructure, which is, you know, heavily antiquated, especially if you look at critical infrastructure, um, that's what creates more complexities, more blind spots, more vulnerabilities, um, you know, tons of devices, a lot of different, um, you know, legacy products in our environment. And that creates just a massive amount of data. And it's really hard to try and, you know, grasp what's in your network and how do I protect it? What do I see out there? Do I see everything? Can I, you know, correlate everything? And can I find it, um, you know, when someone is trying to attack my, my environment, can I see what's happening and can I react fast enough? Okay, so we've been aware of the cybersecurity, you know, issues around the uh, around the globe since the start of the Ukraine war. I guess we've had heightened awareness, but the emergence of AI, that's definitely changed things. So I want to ask you something. According to the White House, we have a major shortage of cybersecurity professionals here in the United States. Uh, according to their data, set more than 700,000 cybersecurity positions are unfilled. That's about 40 percent of the positions unfilled here in the U.S. How does AI change the landscape when it comes to cybersecurity here in the U.S. and globally? Yeah, significantly. I think AI um, is really the answer right now to how you deal uh, with such an immense shortage. And I think you can um, kind of see tangible uses of AI right now to do two things. Uh, one is up-level the skill sets where every junior analyst, every junior cybersecurity analyst can now be, um, you know, 10 times more productive or more proficient in their work. Um, that's the AI augmentation angle. I think the other thing you get with AI um, and definitely the recent developments is scale and speed. Um, the ability to traverse all that data um, you know, petabyte scale of data sometimes in incredible speed, sometimes also um, in real time. So in both of these fronts, this is the way to scale the sales force. It's empowering the defenders to be better at what they do, but also creating, you know, think about it as entry level cybersecurity analysts that are really machine born that you can scale pretty much infinitely with, with software. Um, that is the way um, for us to start fighting back and also bringing some order, um, you know, into what we're seeing in networks out there. You know, Tomer, one other question. Our big story today is First Republic Bank being taken over by J.P. Morgan. Um, some articles out over the weekend citing that cybersecurity stocks have been battered since the, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. How does the banking crisis impact the cybersecurity sector? Hope it's not a sore point, but looking at your stock underperforming over the last month or so. Yeah, I don't know if there's any direct impact, but obviously in a very volatile macro environment, um, you know, technology companies are impacted. The financial sector is obviously obviously a big consumer of cybersecurity products. So there's some element of direct impact. I think generally it's a very, very volatile environment. Um, you know, a lot of customers from all industries are looking into the economy and they're obviously um, want to make sure that they consume as much as they need. So they're right sizing their investments. Um, so you see them, you know, making sure that they optimize uh, as much as they can on their contracts 
Um, luckily, with some of the more modern cybersecurity solutions, you're actually able to up-level what you have in your environment and save some costs. Some of these legacy products that people have in their environment are actually incredibly expensive. So there's uh, there's definitely a move towards more modern infrastructure. But at the same time, I think that customers across industries um, are really being prudent with their spend. All right. Sentinel One also out with its own AI offering. Tomer Weingart, we've got to have you back on to talk AI and just cybersecurity. Appreciate your time and your insight. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. The very latest on the collapse of First Republic Bank. It's J.P. Morgan takeover and the remaining risk to the U.S. banking sector. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, a.k.a. WEX, will be back right after this. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's still on deck. We're following breaking news. U.S. regulators seizing First Republic Bank and what is officially the third major U.S. bank failure in the past two months. Our Leslie Picker is coming up with the very latest. Big tech and an even bigger influence. Look at the sector dominating the market action and why just nine stocks are having an outsized impact on your money. It is Monday, May the 1st, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back. Good Monday morning to you. Hope your day's getting off to a great start. Let's pick up the half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. U.S. stock futures taking a slight move to the upside since we first started the show just about a half an hour ago. We're seeing the S&P, the Dow, and the Nasdaq all in the green before they were all fractionally lower. We're also looking at the bond market, taking out, looking at yields on the benchmark 10-year at 3.46. Not that much movement, but again, we're going to continue to watch that as we inch closer and closer to that Fed decision this week. The yield on the two-year note still above 4%. Again, something to watch. All right, let's get back to our top story and breaking news this morning. California regulators seizing possession of First Republic Bank in what is officially the third major U.S. bank to fail in the past two months. After submitting bids over the weekend, J.P. Morgan says it's assuming approximately all First Republic deposits, including all uninsured assets. Our Leslie Picker joins us now with much more on this developing story. Leslie, good morning to you. Hey, Frank, that would be their uninsured liabilities uh, in their deposit camp. J.P. Morgan acquiring First Republic directly from the FDIC, which seized and immediately sold the faltering bank. The transaction, part of a competitive bidding process, includes a majority of First Republic's assets, including $173 billion in loans and $30 billion in securities. The FDIC and J.P. Morgan entered a loss share agreement where they'll basically share in the losses and potential recoveries from some of First Republic's single-family residential and commercial loans it purchased um, from the former First Republic Bank, many of those underwater in this newer interest rate environment. Now, J.P. Morgan will assume about $92 billion in deposits, including, and this is what we were talking about earlier, the $30 billion in uninsured deposits that were infused into First Republic by J.P. Morgan itself and other large banks in March in an effort to prevent contagion effects from the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. In a statement out earlier this morning, J.P. Morgan Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon said, our government invited us and others to step up and we did. Our financial strength, capabilities, and business model allowed us to develop a bid to execute the transaction in a way to minimize costs to the deposit insurance fund. The FDIC estimates that the cost of the deposit insurance fund will be about $13 billion. J.P. Morgan will not be assuming First Republic's corporate debt 
or preferred stock in this transaction. Shares in First Republic have plummeted something like 97% this year. First Republic will go down as the second largest U.S. bank failure in history, bigger even than Silicon Valley Bank when it comes to their asset size, Frank. So, Leslie, a lot to digest here. Uh, you're doing a great job breaking it down. There's nobody is more versed in the banking sector than you. So first, I want to talk about what does this deal mean for the U.S. banking sector and the global banking sector, at least in the near term? Will it be ripple effects? In the near term, it doesn't appear that there are necessarily ripple effects. Just looking purely at uh, you know the way that various uh, regional banks traded on Friday when a lot of these negotiations were going down. In fact, the KBW regional index was actually up. That said, if you look at credit, there are some tremors. There were spreads that did widen in some of the regional banks as a result of all the uncertainty here. So it'll be interesting to pay attention to those to see how the market's really reacting now that we see what this deal looks like. But one of the big changes and one of the big differentiators this time around is that they did, uh, the FDIC seized and sold the bank immediately with the hope of kind of preventing some of that uncertainty and potentially ring fencing some of the issues here. All right. So we're looking at some regional banks lower in the pre-market. Key Corp seems to be the outlier up uh, almost a half a percent. But I want to get back to this FRC deal. Why did these negotiations, why did they take so long? Regulators were really hoping to ink a deal yesterday. <laughs> why did it take all the way into the 11th hour? It's a great question. I mean, these these issues are not necessarily simple. We're not talking about, as I mentioned, acquiring, you know, the equity and corporate debt and, you know, a, a kind of clean, normal transaction. This is something that went into receivership, acquiring it out of receivership. They have a lot of their assets. A lot of their loans are underwater because their business model was essentially making loans to wealthy individuals. Um, some of these jumbo mortgages that are underwater by current standards. They took out loans from the Federal Reserve at much higher interest rates than they're generating on these loans. And so they're looking at basically a kind of an unprofitable situation. And it, it gets to be messy. So you have someone like J.P. Morgan who has seen this movie before. They come in um, and they, they have at least experience knowing how to do this type of cleanup. Not everybody does. And so they had to kind of assess to see what it meant for their business model. Will they bid? And what these bids look like. Both the FDIC and J.P. Morgan said that they were very competitive. Uh, that the whole process was very competitive in terms of First Republic. Let's talk a little bit more about J.P. Morgan, Leslie. A lot of talk about their size already. It's the largest U.S. bank by assets and now holds well north of 10 percent of all U.S. bank deposits. What does this deal mean for the number of deposits or percentage of deposits that J.P. Morgan holds? What does it also mean potentially in the long terms for the regional bank sector? It definitely exacerbates this idea that we've seen over the last uh, few months now, this idea that the big are getting bigger and uh, more. there's a greater comfort in that idea versus the regional banks where investors are wondering, you know, will they, the regional bank that they're invested in be the next domino to fall here? Um, so there, there's kind of this just bifurcation in the banking system that is just only exacerbated um, by situations like these that has people wondering, you know, should I maybe be taking my deposits out. It will require the regional banks to increase the amount of um, interest that they are paying for those deposits in order to make sure that they can keep those deposits, um, whereas the big banks do have this kind of at least reputation right now uh, of being a little bit more of a, a safe place to store their money. All right. So let's just talk about banks more broadly. J.P. Morgan in its statement said, it created a deal that will limit the hit to the FDIC's balance sheet, but it will still hit it. 
to right around 13 billion. For reference, Silicon Valley cost about 30 billion. The biggest banks, they're going to have to help the regulator make up this shortfall. What does that mean? Can you kind of translate it to the audiences, especially as we look at the market action today? Yeah, I know that's exactly right. So there are a lot of equations at play here. So the, the FDIC insurance fund is comprised and there's a certain of big banks contributing to that. There's a certain um, calculation in terms of the bank size for how much they put into that fund. So when you take money out in order to pay out insured deposits um, for certain failures, then those larger banks have to put money back in in order to make up the difference so that the, the banking system is able to um, you know, abide by this idea that there are insured assets um, up to $250,000 per account. Um, so when you have failures like this, it is largely up to the, the bigger banks in order to kind of fill that gap. Now, what's interesting about this situation as well is there were 11 firms that put in um, $30 billion worth of deposits in order to shore up confidence in First Republic. So this situation is one where you were looking at a hit potentially to that insurance fund from the FDIC where they'd have to make up the difference. But then also you've got this $30 billion worth of deposits hanging in the balance as well. So uh, in order to kind of ensure that those are insured and, and, you know, um, safe and, and sound. This is kind of the situation that they came up with doing this, this seize and sale immediately. So JP Morgan is now assuming those $30 billion worth of deposits. So you don't necessarily need to tap into the FDIC fund for that. Our, our Leslie Picker. Leslie, thank you so much. Great to have you on a morning like this. All right. Turn That's our right. attention now to earnings. The broader market is big tech lead stocks higher. With bets on growth continuing to be the hottest trade on the street, but when it comes to tech, these days, only nine names. They really seem to matter for the markets. We're talking the likes of AMD, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, and more, making up roughly a quarter of the S&P 500 index's market cap and playing a very outsized role in which way it trades. In fact, according to our friends at Bespoke, Apple and Microsoft alone have accounted for about 39% of the S&P 500's gains so far this year. If you throw in Meta and NVIDIA to that list, you're looking at 60% of the moves to the upside year to date. Joining me now is big technology founder and CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz. Alex, good morning. Good morning, Frank. All right, so we're looking at the breadth of the market's uh, move to the upside so far this year. What do you make of these mega cap names really being the catalyst for the move? It's pretty interesting because we're in a moment where they shouldn't necessarily be the ones leading. We're in a higher interest rate environment where You'd imagine that tech offloads some of that responsibility of driving the market up to other companies. But yet you see these companies, like you mentioned, Apple and Microsoft driving the S&P 500 and driving the market forward. And, you know, on one hand, it's a question of where's everybody else? And on the other hand, it's just a testament to the resilience and the strength of these companies that they continue to move the market and grow, even in times that don't really favor them. Okay, so. I understand that you're saying it's kind of counterintuitive for these these companies to be outperforming, but their strong balance sheets um, are one of the reasons, I believe. Are there any other reasons besides AI why investors are feeling so much confidence in mega cap tech? Well, they, they continue to grow. I, I think that's well, most of them continue to grow. Right. And I think that's huge. And you look at a company like Amazon, which brought in one hundred and twenty seven billion last quarter and jumped nine percent from a year earlier. And you have this there was this narrative that they had hit their pandemic highs and they'd be really tough to it'd be really tough for them to measure up to the base that they set previously. And they continue to surge forward. You look at Meta, right? It's returned to growth after a few years, a few quarters of, of revenue decline. So 
there are strong signs that these businesses are are you know still able to weather the economic conditions that that you know shouldn't have favored them. Again, you look at the interest rate, but it's also these high bases that they set and during the pandemic, and they're still able to search forward despite that. All right, I want to look ahead to Apple. Um, is there anything that you can read from the earnings we had last week that will give you some insight into Apple this week? For example, we see Google obviously has a big search business, but it also has a huge ad business. Does that translate into what we might see from Apple? Microsoft, it has a big device business. Does that translate into to, to what we might hear from Apple? Well, it does put the pressure on Apple because if you're Apple and you're coming after these, you know, these pretty impressive earnings from your fellow big tech companies, you kind of can't afford to miss. I mean, of course, Apple has its own strength, but last quarter was, were, you know, was pretty bad for Apple in terms of the market beating the market expectations. It missed uh, on everything, and you don't want to do that again, especially two quarters straight. And, and of course, yes, there's a um, search, an ad business with Google. There's a device business with Microsoft. When you think about Apple, right? It's exposed almost 100% to this slowdown that we're seeing in consumer devices, and I think that will you know, present an extra struggle for the company to really overcome this quarter. One other thing I want to look at is Amazon. So you, you were actually kind enough to give us some grades on these different tech earnings reports. You give <laughs> Amazon an A. One of the surprises, I think, in the report was that big beat on ad spending. So what does that tell us about just the, the market out there when it comes to ads? That's going to be obviously a big part of the story when it comes to Apple. Yeah, for Amazon, you, you know, it's almost like that some of the search advertising is moving from Google to to Amazon. And you look at Google, you had a, a actually relatively slow growth in search advertising, only 1.8%. And you think about that, that's compared to somewhere in the 20% range pre, in the previous quarter, uh, well, the previous uh, uh, comparative quarter. So now you see this growth in advertising with Amazon, like, well, what's happening here? Well, maybe the people who said we want to be closest to the purchase inside Google are now saying we want to be closest to the purchase inside Amazon. This is as good as it's going to get. You know, we're going to be as close to that intense signal as possible. Let's move our budgets towards Amazon. Amazon's ad business has been a strength for that company for years, and it's, it hasn't been talked about enough, I don't think. And I think that this is starting to you know, be strength on strength, where Amazon's business is snowballing. And once it starts working for marketers, they move their money there, and the momentum continues. All right, certainly something to watch. Alex Kantrowitz of Big Technology, always great to see you. Thank you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, OPEC surprise cuts officially take effect today. So have traders already priced them in, or are there more gains coming in a sector that's just kind of treading water? Our Pippa Stevens is here to answer those questions and many others. Stick with Wex. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We're following some breaking news. Treasury out with a statement on this morning's deal moments ago saying, quote, Treasury is encouraged that this institution was resolved with the least cost of the deposit insurance fund and in a manner that protected all depositors. This is in reference to the deal where J.P. Morgan is acquiring the majority of the assets of First Republic Bank. The statement goes on to say the banking system remains sound and resilient, and Americans should feel confident in the safety of their deposits and the ability of the banking system to fulfill its essential function of providing credit to businesses and to families. And again, this is off the back of the deal for J.P. Morgan to acquire the majority of the assets of First Republic Bank. Looking at the moves of J.P. Morgan Chase this morning, up about two and a quarter percent off of its highs earlier this morning. First Republic Bank, however, taking a move to the downside, now down more than 40 percent. All right. Turning our attention now to the oil market and the energy market. 
It has been roughly one month since OPEC Plus announced a surprise production cut of more than 1.1 million barrels per day. And today, those cuts officially take effect. The new production pledges bringing the total volume of cuts by OPEC Plus, which includes Russia and other allies, to nearly 3.7 million barrels per day through the end of the year. That's equal to roughly 3.7 percent of global demand. The move, when they first announced, caused an immediate spike in oil prices. But with WTI crude up just about a half a percent in the past month, as the OPEC cuts have been offset by worries about the banking sector, obviously a big story today, and a global economic slowdown. Let's talk much more about this now with CNBC's Pippa Stevens. Pippa, you've been all over this right now. I think the big question, we were thinking, we were all thinking, we're going to see a big spike in oil prices after those Mm -hmm. production cuts. Now that they officially take effect, what are we going to see? Is that cut already priced in or could we potentially finally see the spike people were expecting? I mean, oil has been so volatile. And as you said, it initially spiked after those cuts were announced. But since then, you know, the the OPEC cut has really taken the back seat. And there's much more concern around a global economic slowdown. We have the Fed decision coming up on Wednesday. We also got weak manufacturing data out of China last night. So the OPEC cuts, while important, they're only one part of the story. And remember, we're not talking about all that many barrels in actuality, given that OPEC was already underproducing relative to their quotas. This has always been a problem. OPEC announces these big, bold actions. They're going to take barrels off the market. And countries like Saudi Arabia are very much able to do that. They have a buffer. They have very high production. Some of the smaller players that really rely on that revenue from their oil production, they're not as able to do that. Also, it's hard to shut in production. You can't just flip a switch and have these oil wells stop producing. So there's a lot of factors at play. And so while the headline number could be more than 3 million barrels per day in total, when it comes down to it, how much are we actually going to see? And so to your point, I think that this cut really already has been priced in. We've seen that, how OPEC, how oil prices rallied, and then have come back down over the over after the market digested that news and looked towards other things. You know, that nuance you provided was really important. Some of them were already producing under their quotas. So the impact of this may not be as big as the headline sounds. So one other thing I want to talk to you about is China. We've seen China moving in fits and starts. So this morning, we saw reports that the manufacturing sector was contracting. Over the weekend, uh, China Beige Book, um, they released uh, a report saying that revenge spending is ramped up and travel is ramped up. How big of a story will China be when it comes to the oil market, at least now in the second quarter, in the near term? China is the story. (laughs) To put it bluntly, everything is resting on China. And all of the oil bulls this entire year have been pointing to this demand recovery in China as fueling oil prices. And the problem is that so far, we just haven't seen that. We had some weak travel numbers. We had the weak manufacturing data, as you noted. And everything is resting on that market. They are the world's largest oil importer. And one thing we've seen is that while imports have gone up, so have their fuel exports, meaning that on the ground, Where does demand stand? Because if they're importing a lot, but then exporting a lot, it means that there's not actually that demand recovery in China itself. Now, everyone is still pointing, and I mean everyone, I mean OPEC and the IEA, is still pointing to this back half recovery. But so far, we just haven't seen that. And that's what everyone has been resting on because they are so instrumental to this market. And also with with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what we've seen is a reorientation of all these global flows. And so China is now importing record amounts of oil from Russia, as is India. And so when we also talk about that OPEC cut... Russia production has been so much more resilient than people initially thought when they invaded. And that's another key part of the story because their oil is still on the market. It's just going to new places. All right. One other thing I want to talk to you about, a macro thing, the quote unquote freight recession. Last week, I talked to the UPS CEO. She talked about 
global volumes of freight, uh, in, also here in the U.S., volumes of freight dramatically slowing down. Uh, another big trucker, J.B. Hunt, calling out a freight recession. Mm-hmm. How does that impact the oil market? Yeah, I mean, you've been all over this. This is your bread and butter. So what we've seen is that heating oil futures, which is a proxy for diesel, that has come down a lot, meaning that there is some weakness in the diesel market. J.B. Hunt's CEO said that there has been um, people are, are looking for services and not so much goods. And so that's leading to a decline in demand for diesel. And that factors through into oil, because if diesel prices come down, then refiners buy less oil. And so then they're not there to support the prices of oil. So there's all these different parts of the oil market right now that are kind of flashing different signals. And that's leading to traders to say, eh, do I really want to be in this? I got to see how the freight, how, if there's freight recovery, you know, China demand recovery, and then just the Federal Reserve and what they do. All right. Pippa Stevens, finger on the pulse. <laughs> I think a lot of people are just worried about gas prices. <laughs> yeah. Pippa Stevens, thank you very much. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, how today's uh, deal for First Republic will shape the trading day ahead. We have our Surat Sethi weighing in coming up. But first, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the month of May. We're sharing stories of influential AIPI business leaders. Here is Amazon Prime Video U.S. President Albert Chang. I'm proud of my Chinese culture. I am proud of the Confucian principles in which I was raised, but I'm also proud of being born as an American where I can embrace all the positive qualities that makes this country so uh, unique. Uh, and, you know, as, as a community, the, the Asian um, culture or community has never really had a voice. And uh, what I'm really happy to see is that that voice has only grown louder and prouder Uh, because a lot of the attention has been placed on certain individuals and the community um, that's been given a profile on the, the world stage. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we call your WEX wrap up. Six stories to know before the opening bell. Our top story we've been following all morning long, J.P. Morgan acquiring all of First Republic's deposits and most of its assets after California's financial regulator took possession of the troubled regional bank earlier this morning. China's manufacturing activity unexpectedly shrank last month and growth in the services sector slowed more signs of that country's uneven post-COVID economic recovery. SoftBank's UK-based chipmaker Arm has confidentially filed for its initial public offering. Arm plans to sell shares on the Nasdaq later this year and reportedly plans to raise between $8 and $10 billion. Charlie Munger is reportedly warning of trouble for the U.S. commercial property market. Munger told the Financial Times, U.S. banks are packed with bad loans that could be vulnerable if bad times come and property values fall. But Munger said it is not nearly as bad as 2008. OpenAI, the startup behind ChatGPT, has reportedly closed its latest funding round, adding an additional $300 million. That puts OpenAI's valuation between $27 and $29 billion. According to TechCrunch, some of the VC firms picking up shares include Tiger Global, Sequoia Sequoia Capital, and Andreessen Horowitz, among others. Microsoft is believed to have ponied up around $10 billion back in January. And Super Mario Brothers is the first movie this year to top a billion dollars in estimated box office receipts. Universal Pictures' animated film is just the fifth movie since the pandemic to top a billion. Universal Pictures is part of NBC Universal, the parent company of CNBC. All right, we're gearing up for the trading day and the week ahead. Today, we get manufacturing PMI data and the ISM Manufacturing Index, plus earnings from Norwegian Cruise Lines and MGM Resorts. Tomorrow, it's March factory orders and the monthly job openings and labor turnover, turnover survey, or the JOLTS. 
Pfizer, Ford, Uber and Starbucks are also reporting their results and the Fed kicks off its two day policy meeting. Then on Wednesday, look for ADP employment report, services PMI and the ISM services index, Qualcomm, Kraft Heinz and Airbus are all out with their earnings. The Fed decision will be announced at 2 p.m. Eastern, followed by Jay Powell's news conference at 2.30 p.m. It's also the ECB's turn on Thursday with the rate decision expected at 8.15 a.m. Eastern. Apple reports earnings after the closing bell. We also get results from AB InBev and ConocoPhillips. The week wraps up on Friday with April jobs report at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. We're also on the lookout for earnings from Cigna and Warner Brothers Discovery. So much to get through this week. Plus, there's also the matter of First Republic currently hanging over the markets. Let's bring in Surat Sethi to help us guide through uh, the, man, the trading day ahead. He's the managing partner and portfolio manager at DCLA and a CNBC contributor. Good morning, Surat. Good morning, Frank. All right, Surat, I'm sure you're watching this morning's deal for J.P. Morgan to acquire the majority of First Republic. In your mind, how does that influence the trading day ahead? Well, I think there was a lot of uncertainty here. Um, you know, after First Republic's earnings, Investors were concerned, okay, what's going to happen here? Uh, you were seeing deposits leave. You were seeing people and the wealth management practice leave. So I think this cre- this takes away the uncertainty for the market. It takes away that, hey, this was a troubled bank. What's going to happen? Are there going to be ramifications? What are the unintended consequences? And I think what you've seen now is an agreement where the depositors will be you know, taken over and, and you've got some type of guarantee there. And I think that's important for the market because you just don't want to see kind of things unravel and people say, what's going to be the next one? So we're looking at the futures right now, Surat, uh, kind of flat. They moved very slightly fractionally to the upside just a short time ago. Now flat, just kind of wavering between, you know, in the negative and the positive. What should we make of this market reaction to this deal being done? Um, Does this create some finality for the financial sector, which should stabilize the market? Or do you see more questions? So I think, you know, the news of this came out Friday afternoon. So it was already embedded in the market. And I do think this will provide some type of floor for the market. But now the question is going to be, Frank, interestingly enough, the focus will be on other banks, right? We've already been through uh, earnings for banks, but are there other any small, mid-sized banks out there? And I think investors will be looking for at this point, though, I do think you provide a little bit of floor. And we kind of look forward to some of the things that you were talking about just a couple of minutes ago, the leading economic indicators. Where are they going? You know, the, the softening data has been coming out, but the market really hasn't discounted it yet. So the question is, do the cyclicals start discounting it? Because Right now, uh, you know, things have actually been looking up for, for some of the, the growthy stocks. All right, Sarat, you gave us some stock picks before this news broke out this morning. We're going to throw those out the window. Where would you put money to work in the market today on the back of this news? So, you know, we've been kind of positioned more defensively into consumer staples, healthcare, some utilities. I think valuation is really important, Frank. I think earnings growth is slowing down. And, and unless you're really growing much faster than the market, I think investors today are going to say, why am I paying such a premium for stocks and sectors when I have other alternatives? I can get four or five percent in the bond world or I can get good defensive companies at discounts to the market that are growing just as much, if not higher. Yeah. Hard not to look at the uh, the short term bonds right now, especially the three month yield just above five percent last time I checked. Sarat Sethi, thank you for the insight. Thanks for being here. All right. One last look at the futures right now, as we mentioned pretty much flat right now. They've moved just a bit to the upside earlier. Now we're seeing the NASDAQ go back down to the downside just very slightly in the red. And that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We got Squawk Box coming up with uh, coming up next.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC.